Welcome back to All My Darlings, where we are reading Marguerite Young, Inviting the Muses. And I'm not ready. Let's see. We have a fairly <clears throat> longish story. Today, I'll probably take about a half hour. I need to find some cool jazz to play. I can't see. Um, well, that looks nice. Morning jazz sounds good. Oh, it was snowing this morning. Okay. Well, icy, whatever. No, we weren't in the blizzard. The really bad winter weather, thank goodness. Uh, so I have a confession to make. Um, let me just make sure this won't. It's on the outside. Okay. That shouldn't rattle too much. Um, I've been doing Anchor, and I've been doing this lovely ad that I'm sure you're sick of listening to, but I am 40 cents away from cashing out. And so just to let you know, once I hit that cash out amount, it's 10 whole dollars. I will not ever put any more ads on anything that I do on the podcast ever again. So just <laughs> that's my confession. So I'm just letting you know, that's my goal. Once I hit, once I hit my goal, I'm done. I won't put, I'll disable the ad thing. I won't put anything more on there and that'll be it. I will have done, reached another goal that I set out to do with uh, uh, listeners help, of course. Okay, so if you're wondering when that will end, that will end then. Okay. Old James. So if you remember right, I mean, there's a little bit of odds here and there that I, that I see again in Miss McIntosh, my darling. Um, we are in the publications. Let me see what this one. Yeah, we're still, actually these short, oh, this is the last, is this the last one? Okay, this is the last short story of this section before we go into essays. So this is before she started Miss Macintosh, My Darling. After this, uh, I think this was written concurrently. The essays were written while she was writing Miss Macintosh, My Darling. And even after she finished, they do get publication dates. And with the reviews, we get them before, during, and after. Wait, before and during, do we get any after? Yes, and we get after. Well, maybe. Yes, we do. Not much. <coughs> oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. It just doesn't leave your chest. When she has this COVID, it just, you just feel like you have this head cold, but not quite a head cold. Uh, um, you have to blow your nose a lot, but you just feel like you've caught something in the back of your throat and you have to cough. It's just weird. There's nothing wrong with my oxygen level, nothing like that. It's just that lingering. Oh my gosh, it's horrible. It's like the worst cold ever. Um, oh, so we get little, little hints. 
of stuff that comes up in Miss Macintosh, my darling. And old James, I have no idea. I have to read this. Uh, this is the first time I'm reading this. But James was the chauffeur in Miss Macintosh, my darling. So it'll be interesting to see what's in here. Old James. It, it may have something to do with it. It may not at all. I don't know. But every once in a while, I get like a little hint, a little glimpse. But I just remember the name is the same. So let's see if, I don't know. Let's see what it's about. Old James would sit at his desk in the twilight. He would wear his hat, but that was no sign he noticed the hour that the sun had already gone down and there was only twilight, and far beneath him on the circle the first lamps of the city he knew so well, twinkling like stars. He would be oblivious to the misty shaft of the sailors and soldiers' monument, too, and the stone pioneer woman blotted out with the dogs and children crouching at her feet, and the shotgun she pointed towards some unseen enemy. Miss Greenwood, tired but efficient, would sit at his ponderous elbow waiting for the flow of his inspiration. Then she would take a circuitous dictation in the semi-darkness and her mind, half inclined toward problems of her own, which old James would never guess, as she had learned the art of self-effacement. She was, indeed, the perfect secretary. He could not have told anyone the color of her eyes or her hair, young as she was and not unattractive, but she enjoyed his ignorance of her. She liked being anonymous, as in that fact lay her only freedom. Not only would he disregard her, but also the Greek faces she drew in her shorthand book among spidery writings, and the Christian hymns she would sing above the clacking of her typewriter keys, in which she detected a hidden music. There we go. The job was not unpleasant, really. But why would old James always put off the important deeds? Why would, he, why would he always call her in at the last moment to tell her the things he had forgotten, the roads he had intended to follow? All day he would sit at his desk with his hat tipped back over his head and fringe of iron-gray curls and a smile like a shadow on his high-cheek-boned, lean, almost sensitive face. He would look sad and happy, uncertain and determined. People who came in said expecting to go somewhere, all day the stockbroker would waste in useless speculations, either with his friends or his fancies, if there were no visitors, not even a World War buddy who was down on his luck. He would play with the telephone, dialing number after number until he could find at last a sympathetic party. That was anyone who would be could be persuaded to listen to him. He would engage in the most fantastic conversations. His sentences were endless, whining on and on. He would tell of the hollyhocks he had stolen from Anne Hathaway's garden in Stratford when foolishly he went abroad 41 years ago, and at that time he had hardly suspected what the future would bring and how the large percentage of hollyhocks growing along back fences in Indianapolis might be directly traced to Shakespeare's vanished England. <clears throat> or, he, <clears throat> or he would tell of the number of cows which he calculated to be existent in the state of Indiana or the quality of burlesque in the 1890s. Listen to that. He was forever looking up the boundary lines of farms which used to be in this teeming city when 16th Street was known as Tinker and was shaded by oak trees, the Blue Farm, for example, and the McFall Farm adjoining, and the McFall son married a blue daughter, and the Blues were distantly related to the Cutlers. This and that pretentious item. Only at twilight he would emerge suddenly from his den like a lion pouncing upon Miss Greenwood with his thousand memories as incalculable businesses which could not be put off. He seemed to ignore, with the innocence of a child who wants his dinner, the knowledge that Miss Greenwood had hunched all day over a typewriter keyboard, which has its limitations, in that it removes one from actuality and life. Old James was that inconsiderate. 
But if he was a tortured soul crying for expression, he was at least sublimely tortured, enjoying his martyrdom to the cause of his own resourceful energy. For what other reason, Miss Greenwood wondered, must his life be written of? He would have appreciated some reserve on the subject. She would have been so happy if old James had been interested in golf or chess, or if even his politics had sufficed him. But in that happy state, she would have had no job whatever, she realized. They are killing me, old James would say, speaking perhaps the world. You are killing me, she wanted to say. But who can argue with an employer in the heart of the world's worst depression, really, when able-bodied men were selling apples on street corners and human labor is the cheapest commodity? Miss Greenwood considered that hers was the one position she could fill. In fact, she was aware that old James exaggerated her perfection, that she was not accurate, that her eyes were too vague and far-seeing to please the average businessman who would have accused her of being merely absent-minded. Though highly valued by old James because of her sensitivity to all his impressions, there were hiatuses in her shorthand too, blank spaces in her notebook she might fill in with blowing apple trees or cherry trees in full blossom at will, and old James would never quibble. He would assume the credit for them. As for his Sunday school teacher's flickering curl, which he really did remember, though he had forgotten to mention it in a delicate shadow on her white forehead, that was a long time ago, the period of his one and only conversion. Other details had quite escaped him, but he would take in his stride all the past, even when he had forgotten, like the portrait of Jesus Christ with the woolly lamb in his arms on the walls of the church, which Miss Greenwood had added thoughtfully to a description which seemed rather too hurried in its realism. Old James was never in the least annoyed by these superstitious, surreptitious additions to his life. He was gratefully appreciative of his own overwhelming experience, and the fact that blackbirds on a wire fence by the blue cornfield had really belonged to him. Myriads of blackbirds, and every log and every fireplace, every wonderful sunset had been his, and there was nothing which had evaded his grasp. The possibility of an error on Miss Greenwood's part was, therefore, practically non-existent. Old James would not even wink an eye in surprise, but would congratulate himself on the vigorous activity of his memory, his subtle involvement of the past he had loved, the crabapple orchards where the smoke-stained post office building now is, and the covered toll bridge over Lonesome Fall Creek when that marked the edge of the town, and wheat and cornfields where the policeman stands signaling like a wooden doll. Under that tree he had signed a treaty with the boys when they were young. He remembered so much, really, that other people had forgotten. The red brick schoolhouse covered with honeysuckle vines, their smell as thick as butter in the summer air. Ay, ay, ay. Really? I'm glad I just exist here as a springboard for you to jump from me to your perch, little one. He's giving me love blinks because he knows I'm scolding him. Okay, where was I? I like that. Their smell is thick as butter in the summer air. An old Dr. Croydon, who could read Greek and Hebrew as easily as English, though he knew little of cancer, which was his specialty, and of which disease he died, and a daisy meadow where the Republican Club is leaning in hoary age, and a thousand inconsequential things like his own brown legs in the brook, and blackberry bushes and gooseberry groom, where the asphalt covers over the past like a tomb, and a beautiful opera singer who stayed all night in a cheap hotel. <clears throat> the lady was his lost Lenore. His own daddy had been a drummer boy in the Civil War. His own daddy would remember mule carts in Indianapolis and Abraham Lincoln, who stood in the rain outside the Claypool Hotel talking to crowds and crowds of silent people. That was why old James was a Republican. He could remember his daddy's memories as well as his own, and the first telephone and the first electric light bulb, what a sensation that made. And he could remember the perfume of wet violets that opera singer 
worn a bouquet at her lily-white throat and a brass bedstead and the poultry house when it was a Greek Orthodox church. And a funeral he went to there and the priest in robes of gorgeous scarlet and gold. How the priest had thrown dirt on the face of a dead child. Afterwards there were chickens perched in that room with a broken stained glass window and he could remember a narrow angel transparent as light and the chickens rustling in sleep on their perches and the dirty feathers. It was only, it was like yesterday. At that time, old James was a young newspaper man with a notebook and a love for everything pertaining to humanity, and that was how he had come to learn all the streets of the town and even a few domestic tragedies, which got into print in those days, as the game of journalism was intended then to illuminate privacy, and there were no international events to speak of, only a race riot or two. He had said shadows pacing back and forth behind window blinds. He had known Benjamin Harrison, a shadow behind a window blind, and thereafter President of the United States. He had known a shadow behind a window blind who became ambassador in Naples or somewhere, and another who was nothing but a horse thief. This period of old James's history pleased him immeasurably, perhaps because he was not so concerned in it with himself as with other fabulous characters, like the barber who strangled his wife's brother-in-law with a towel and afterwards ran for senator. From this period of his history, old James practically disappeared, being replaced by the census, for he had known everybody who was anybody and many other people besides, like a Dutch Jew who ran a tulip stall at market. His own errand boy had become the head of a great chain of newspapers covering every front and a few that no one had ever heard of. It was old James's complaint that he, personally, had loved the town too much to leave it for grapes in an arbor. He had turned down the offer of China and the thousand golden domes of Genghis Khan. He had preferred his own old, his own old outhouse. Not that he would ever regret a choice that he had made. Old James was inclined to skim lightly over a still earlier period when he had been famous, of all things, as a poet with long hair and rival to James Whitcomb Riley. That was in his tender youth, so to speak. Even then, however, there had been a difference between himself and other poets, reality having been the one subject of his imagination, for his songs were about people in all their marvelous crudities, like the salon keeper at the old Mecca, and the old Mecca was torn down in 1912. Old James had not stayed in a dark room drinking whiskey in order to forget the people he wrote about. He had never dwelled in an ivory tower. Oh no, but he had really known the scissors grinder, the umbrella mender, the old rags man and the railroad hands in the depraved district of Irish Hill, the men like scarecrows. Nobody had feared the masses then, for they had not seemed nearly so dangerous as colorful. That was how old James apologized for his earlier literary flights of fancy, which some political enemy might still resurrect as such a man will stoop to any crime. The poet, old James, would have left largely a blank had it not been for Miss Greenwood at his elbow. She insisted on his reality. She added her wreath, her wealth. She added her wealth of details, the tang of autumn days, the flight of wild geese, and a rose which never withers, and the face of a Madonna on the West Washington Street, the magician who drew rabbits out of his hat at the Grand Opera. She gave a facial expression to the scissors grinder and an air of mystery to the umbrella man, who seemed apprehensive, and she gave a body to the old rags man, who sat upright in his mule cart, with a bright orange parasol over his Italian head. She inserted a farmer here and there, depending on sweet watermelon, and ripe corn is always evocative detail. She did not permit her imagination to wander too far, though, for old James's sake, everything must bear his torch. Considering her own rather limited experience, it was harder for her to imagine old James as a banker than as a man with a flair for beauty in every disguise. Old James apologized moreover for banking as for poetry. He had married a rich lady who had abhorred the poet in him, and lo, in spite of himself, he had become a banker, almost overnight. What does a banker think of? 
Old James wanted to leave that section to the gentle reader's invention. Naturally, a banker thinks of money, but pressed by Miss Greenwood, Old James admitted that he had run into some queer birds, like the man who kept 50 oriental rugs in a safety vault and died on a park bench in Chicago. He knew a box manufacturer who had owned a letter written by Shelley. Old James himself had never been a collector. He would not give a dime for all the tear-stained letters in the world. Quoth the raven, nevermore. There was no use in pretending that he had enjoyed banking, the humanity blotted out by dollars and cents. If his wife's father had not made a fortune with easy mattresses, he might have continued the life he had begun. Nobody knew what his life would have been like in that case, but it would have been his own. But in the beginning, to use the biblical phrase, there were so many events incalculable as life, and now they would besiege him, crying to be spoken. He must neglect, therefore, his business interest in real estate. He would be less concerned with these than with the lilac bush at his mother's grave and the satyrs in University Park. He wanted to read old newspapers, which advertised bicycles for sale. He wanted to read old telephone directories, as he had no longer any faith in the future. It was well that he had this claim of the past upon him, an interest in the rose which withers not. So all the blank spaces Miss Greenwood filled, thinking of Eden and Paradise Lost and her evening she might have had with the girls at the boarding house. To everybody, old James boasted of her almost supernatural shorthand and of her feeling for his finest intentions so that a look sufficed to convey the unspoken word. If her paycheck was pitifully small, that was, Mrs. that was Miss Greenwood's secret, as she knew she could not expect to be remunerated for her talent with any coin of the realm. Old James had money, yes. It reeked like the vile cigar he chewed and spilled all over his otherwise immaculate shirtfront. He had acquired, in spite of himself, the habit of financial success as rigorous as opium. He made money in the heart of the Depression. He made more than in normal times. His company merely advertised that it was willing to purchase certain stocks which had sunk to unheard of depths. Widows dug up their certificates from the backyard as the saying went. They brought them in like so many soap coupons. There was, however, a coterie of alert buyers for these printed sheets of a purely hypothetical wealth. That is, the owners who knew that railroad and steel, though dead, would be resurrected, a new machinery of profit and loss. All these processes, of course, old James was privileged to ignore, except for his signature on the more significant documents. He had a well-trained staff. His salesmen performed miracles between golf games, while he gathered imaginary manna like the dews from heaven falling upon the earth. He was interested in all the fine gardens of the past. Actually, he owned a rose garden, too, but he spent a few hours there as it did not belong to the past. Poor Fritz, the one-eyed gardener, cultivated those exotic flowers for which old James claimed credit at his club. Old James always ordered the best of dirt. His pocketbook was always open to the new demands of the soil. He buried a fortune in the cold ground. He was optimistic about the ground, but the political world he was convinced was going to the dogs of the Democrats. That was why deeply he mistrusted Fritz, the shuffling fool who might become his master if the Democrats had their way, so that he, not Fritz, would plant the roses in wilderness, and Fritz would be praised at the club. To the boys at the club, he lamented on a precarious state of things difficult to grasp. Theirs was a swan song for the lonely grandeur of the individual. Never a week went by that somebody did not steal the fixtures out of a rental house, even the bathtub or toilet, if there was one, so that a property owner could not call his soul his own. And then the poor would threaten to kill you. Perhaps the only factor that saved old James and his friends from the assassination they expected on the streets was time itself. Mysterious time, which respects no man. Seldom a month went by that old James did not write an epitaph for a friend.
appear on the front pages of the more conservative newspapers, which lamented the passing of an older order. No matter what Hitler's armies were already gathering for war or other nefarious dealings, each man must have his laurel wreath, and there must be an air of resigned sorrow in the card and billiard rooms at the club. It was almost pleasant, the sorrow. By chance only, since old James was an American, his original ancestor, Theophilus, had fought in the Revolution. All his friends were people of importance, bankers, merchants, factory owners. All had come up the hard way, but were now retired from the latitudinous pursuit of money as an end in itself. All had their hobbies, their peacock or stud farms, their rose gardens, their orchids, acres and acres protected by glass, and the temperature of summer maintained in a blizzard. It was nothing for a man to order a carload of manure. Old James himself was noted for his hobby, which was to discover the whereabouts of the sword carried by Theophilus. Theophilus. Theophilus? Maybe it's Theophilus. No, Theophilus. He was always writing letters to curators of museums as to both the character and the sword of, oh, great, of Theophilus. He knew every branch and leaf of his family tree, though he felt that his sister was the one disgrace, for she had rejected Theophilus, claiming a relationship instead with a radical philosopher of the revolution, to which fact she would swear in public. Whereas old James would have died rather than admit this radical to be the true Theophilus, who was only a country boy. The boys at the club would not have approved of such a shady character, an atheist of all things, and a Democrat, of course. They were, it's true, mild about what they believed. They chewed and smoked and quoted the Bible without malice, as a matter of habit. They had grown up with the town, and now they were like empty rooms where the spider's hands have woven their webs in the faded air. Only old James differed from his friends, for though they were at the end of their rope, they knew it as he did not. He was full of a wild, pacing mental energy. He was full of enthusiastic despair. He was even in irrational moments curious about what goes on in the minds of those forlorn gentlemen, the seedy college professors he heard of occasionally from his son, whom he had sent to be his ambassador at Yale. He was wistful for that, and for their administration. If only he could communicate with them, even from this distance, could give them the benefit of his vast experience. His son conveyed, however, none but bitter messages. You have made yourself a spectacle. His son would accuse him for that young man believed in nothing but his own good looks. And though he traveled as far as Budapest, could only report that it was a dirty city, like Indianapolis, and the same people everywhere. He had seen George Bernard Shaw, George Bernard Shaw, for example, and said he was just like any other old fool spouting words. Only Miss Greenwood really understood him in the pro profoundest sense, old James said. Only she knew what it meant to have gone to work as a driver of a hearse at the age of twelve. He told her in the course of his autobiography all he could remember and the chronology he left to her to straighten out. He would leap from the age of twelve to sixty-three without the flicker of an eyelid. It is the autumn of my... Yeah. It is the autumn of my years, she wrote understandingly. The sear, the yellow leaf. She was appropriately on price. She was indispensable. She kept such neat files on his cloudy departed friends, Charles Patton, banker of Strawberry Hill, Leo Cathart, brewer of Whispering Winds, Dan Van Ryder of Questover, James Finnegan of Absalom's Oak, the various gentlemen who had owned fine estates just outside the 
County, for there the tax is still so unreasonable, and a man cannot call his soul his own. She could even remember the particular apt phrases which characterized each departed friend, the heart of gold, the man without equal, the prince among them, the servant of the public, the cordial host, the faithful husband, etc., etc. How many of them had engaged in questionable dealings according to Miss Greenwood's light? The perfect secretary, she filled in no blank spaces here. She said nothing of the truth as she saw it. That Pierre Smith Allen, for example, had thought more of his horses than of the girls at his glove factory. Perhaps, indeed, the former were of, of a finer breeding. Or thus Pierre might have argued with God. Yes, old James was a man who walked consciously with death, who sighed to see time passing. Job himself could not have lamented louder. Once, as he came around the circle panting, exalted by some memory, he had a shock which almost undid him. There, big as life, stood Julius Schaefer, wine merchant. He thought had died two or three years before, had gone to greener pastures. But to add insult to injury, Julius was as surprised as old James himself and did not conceal his amazement. The rascal. He had not been dead. He had been visiting in Germany. So they congratulated each other a little dubiously that they had escaped the ghostly reaper who reaps down the wheat with the tares. Old James invited Julius to dinner and was grateful for the refusal. It would have been a macabre feast. There was yet another remarkable, perhaps amusing incident. Robert Bradenwood, who looked like a street-corner Santa Claus but was notoriously alcoholic, bought his own coffin, carved with cherubs, and preached his own funeral sermon, that he had been a worthy citizen and had already gone to heaven and would be sadly missed by the boys at the club. What a performance! It cheated old James out of a dear opportunity. Now, whatever epitaph he might write for Bradenwood, it would be only in the nature of a feeble anticlimax. Emerson's essays offering no help. Brandonwood, whom nobody could ever have trusted, not even at the polls, married an illiterate country girl with cheeks like apples or rosebuds, and as far as anybody knows, is still alive at death's door. The coffin is in the billiard room at Crow's Nest, where Brandonwood entertains lavishly his own departed spirit, an alcoholic like himself. Old James would sit at his massive desk in the summer and winter twilight and the bells from Christ Church marking those hours he was singularly unaware of as he was wrapped in thought. He had faith in Miss Greenwood's loyalty and no interest in the possibilities of her private life that evening she might have planned. Poor Miss Greenwood. She was so timid. She knew he would never pay her for her extra services. Never. But what could she say? At Christmas, he would slip a $10 gold piece into her pocket and $50 in gold to each bond salesman, even to the one familiarly known as Rat. Literature was, in the last analysis, only a luxury trade. Old James might hate the Rat, as he said he did, but the Rat would be rewarded for the Rat had responsibilities in a family. The salesman paid the office rent and made it possible for Old James to pursue the fraudulent or true memory. They supported Old James and Miss Greenwood both all their vagaries. They said so. Old James they could forgive, as he did not bother them, but they blamed Miss Greenwood about that his aberrations were increasing, and he had been a reasonable man before she came, and they would be glad to see her go about some other business. Old James ignored their playful complaints recklessly. He depended on Miss Greenwood. He got so he almost whined if she stepped out of the room. He never noticed her faded dress, her tired look. He leaned on her utterly. <clears throat> to Miss Greenwood, in detached moments, he spoke of the sorry plight of those who are, are burdened with wealth. She was young, he said, and the future was hers, not his, and there was no privilege she might not enjoy some day if she kept on trying. 
She was a person of talent, what exactly he could not define. She would make a place for herself in the world, whereas he, a man of his age, was doomed to extinction and a doubtful immorality, immortality, which was made all the less certain by the present state of world politics. If only he could have spent his last years in peace gardening. If only he could have been a keeper of bees. But business was so bad he would complain and forget for a whole year to cash the check for $500 in his coat pocket. Business was so bad he would complain and spill $10 bills from his pocketbook, not noticing. So it was a good thing Miss Greenwood was honest. Also, in spite of those ambitious salesmen who brought in the business and the widow's might, he would keep the telephone so busy they would stand like tragic, like a tragic chorus wringing their hands, and a man with a legitimate proposition could get no hearing whatever. While he talked with Seth Jameson as to the sunset guns he had heard in childhood or the bullet holes in the tenements he owned on Gusendorf Street, which holes he would never permit to be plugged up, as by them might be recollected the Civil War and the grand struggle for union. Citizen's gas might drop several points. The financial world might crash around his ears, but of course, such tragedy did not occur to him. As a matter of principle, he disapproved of holidays. Even on the 4th of July, he would come down to the office punctual as usual, and then he might sit at his desk for an hour, wondering why nobody showed up. Not even Miss Greenwood. For him, life itself was a holiday. He wanted excitement. James O. Perkins' company was the best place on earth to take refuge in during a rain or to spend an hour or two between appointments. Old James was always expansive, a cordial host. He got so he could even entertain strangers. A political boss who wore a steel vest and always expected to be shot in the back and should have been would sit with his feet above his head for hours, listening to old James on the subject of Indiana's forgotten men. These were the boys who had marched on a punitive expedition against the Mexican bandit Pancho Villa, a man who smoked a long black cigar. They never encountered him, but they were camped on the banks of the Rio Grande, where... There are many fleas from those from whose maraudings they suffered greatly like the children of Israel. Old James was determined to have this lost regiment, which was his own, represented by an inscription on the Sailors and Soldiers Monument. There was just one blank space, and in that project to have his regiment remembered among the casualties, Old James finally succeeded, the bill being paid by the state. So now he would be always in the public eye. The governor, a rival for many years back, had refused, however, to permit any mention of Pancho Villa, the Fleas, or the Rio Grande. For that reason, old James was determined to put him out of office in the next campaign. He would have enlisted the services of the man in the steel vest if he could have. He was so mad because of the governor's trickery. He ordered 1,000 Chinese elm trees, the fastest growing tree in the world, a new forest which he intended to plant in Indianapolis. His language was rhapsodic. The Chinese elm, if treated well, would be grateful as a dog and would last longer, bearing many leaves which were excellent for shade. It was much used as a decoration in oriental graveyards. It was, he said, uncordial to locusts and the idea of decay. Free of charge, he himself would deliver and plant every tree. Unfortunately, there were parasites innumerable, and the leaves were eaten away, and the few trees which had been planted fell or were cut down. Old James apologized to the public that he was not God. The public was so hard to please. Old James would wish, he said, above all things, to be remembered as the people's friend, the farmer's friend, the property owner's friend. The world was divided into two classes, those who owned property, those who did not. Character, not chance, had made the difference between the north side, where people pay taxes, and the west, where the Greeks celebrate Easter by carrying eggs in their hands, and every man exchanges an egg with every other. 
There was a vast difference between the boys at the club and the Serbian who fished all day and gambled all night, always praising Stalin. Old James was not an idealist like his sister, who had written on a streetcar to the outskirts of Moscow and had designed gold plates for the Vanderbilts. Old James had no patience with communism and long-haired Bolsheviks. He was, in fact, the author of a law to protect the property owner, wherever he found him, a law which allowed taxation above ten cents on the dollar only in case of an emergency. By emergency, old James had meant an unreasonable act of God, like an earthquake or a flood or locusts, but the opposition had proposed that any act is an act of God, and any emergency is an emergency. The law was simply so many words strung together. The legislature debated throughout a whole session running up fearful expenses to be paid by the state. Year after year, the ghostly law was turning up, but it refused to work, clogged by one word, and that was why old James had been driven to the extreme of writing a book about himself. There would be otherwise so little to show for his life of heroic actions. He might just as well have fished and gambled. In the twilight, he would dictate his pages most lovingly for all property owners everywhere, especially in his native state. Miss Greenwood, he may have realized, was not a property owner. Still, she was a sympathetic ear. He would tell her of the things which had happened to him and the things which had never happened at all. He would tell her of going and nutting by the river, tell her of the occasion on which he had almost drowned. By her face, he gauged the what would be the public's reaction to each incident. And if she looked wearied, he would say, Oh, add the details yourself, Miss Greenwood. Put in something that interests you, he would suggest slyly. Or perhaps you could think of some apt quotation from poetry. Tell what I would remember, if I could remember everything. That was a tacit, <coughs> tacit, that was a tacit acknowledgement of the blank spaces she had already filled. Miss Greenwood added in the appropriate context the fragrance of new baked bread in an oven and macaroni at the ball and the white pilliard manor where Mark Twain used to visit before he became, before it became an insurance office and a gambler's den and the gargoyles of the English family on the opera house and how every highly individualized stone face was a symbol of the frozen past. She even remembered affectionately with genuine tolerance the down-at-the-heels artist in the bohemian stained smock who could never make a decent living with his brush in Indianapolis. Out of the natural kindness of his heart, old James had permitted him to paint his wife, the rich, rich lady, then to paint his children in their white suits and blue sashes, and then to paint the house with the stone lions and the iron lace gateway on Delaware Street. So the artist had paid his bills, had he? Oh no, the impunctious... Impunctious impunctious gentleman in the bow tie had skipped off to Paris. Yet old James was grateful to him in the light of subsequent events, almost enough to forgive him for preferring Paris to Indianapolis, that charming center of the universe. For without him, old James would have nothing at all. Since his wife had died in the mountains, his children had grown up in a foreign country under the tutelage of his wife's family, who were snobs speaking French, and the house with the stone lions had been torn down a long time ago. A drugstore now stood there. Yes, Miss Greenwood's pen would slip across the page easily with many vacancies, where afterwards she could provide such nostalgia and regret as old James would enjoy in the full sunlight of the next day and the day after turning the pages importantly as if they were legal and sworn to before sworn to before witnesses. How ecstatic he would look, what a rapturous smile would play on his face then. He was filled with a sense of his own humanity, so large, so Catholic, it would have included the entire census of the past. When there were gracious ladies riding in pony carts on Pennsylvania Street and swans at the Fletcher Place before it became a nunnery, and a man could be sure that God was in his heaven. 
He felt the eccentricity of his own person, that it would never be repeated, that such oddities could never assemble again. And he was the one authority on the subject, the evasive past which he carried in his head, for nobody else remembered old Mr. Barker's purple ties. He would sit by the window whole hours and never notice the bells of Christchurch ringing and the pigeons who fluttered down with that silvery sound like the waters falling from the many fountains. He would sigh and sigh, thinking of Jack Sutton's Andorites. It was in a way confusing to Miss Greenwood, the story of old James's life, past and present, which he would tell her always, even when they were walking around the circle together, and she had no notebook in her hand. Part of it was her story. It was she who noticed the present glistening pigeons and waterfalls, and she who noticed the phantoms of dusty blackbirds in a backcountry lane, and the ice in the pond, and the skaters, and the teal ducks in a gray-green sky years and years ago, and Jack sat with his hunting dogs. It was she who saw the farmers at a horse market in their faces the color of leather, and the baby colts like still splotched with their first golden hairs like the impressions of maple leaves. If only she had been a bigger person, she might have comprehended every detail of that 19th century. The rain, the winds, the people scurrying upon still familiar streets. But it was impossible. Old James never finished the story of his life. For one thing, Miss Greenwood, pressed by responsibility, migrated to Chicago with a pasteboard box and a bag of oranges in her hand. In her hands. In Chicago, Indianapolis seemed terribly remote, like its past butter on bread, rose gardens, turreted houses, a bed to sleep in, grass growing up to the waistline of a marble mercury. Dutifully, however, she wrote to old James, and now for the first time revealed her most private thoughts, which were concerned with riots and steel mills. Old James replied to her that he acknowledged her letter, which he had received in due order, and which he now answered through the correspondence was piled up high on his desk, and he regretted her absence, and he could hardly see his way from one week to another. What else he was thinking of must remain a blank, which nobody filled in. It seems that he had retired into himself. Some say Hitler killed him, but others say it was just old time catching up with him. He died at any rate, and was buried on a rainy day in late October. There were many black umbrellas and important people, mostly property owners, including the ex-governor and several now extinct senators. At the, at the cemetery Crown Hill, they stood in groups in the rain and gray drizzle while the preacher performed a task which he had been paid for, and old James was lowered into the cold ground. The conversation did not touch at all on old James, nobody remembering what he had said on any subject, as it was the year of elections, and every man was betting on his own dark horse. Miss Greenwood, unfortunately, was stranded in Chicago. Having no, car- having no car fare, she could not be present among the mourners. She filled in this last blank space, though. She saw the immense coffin lowered into the cold ground, and she was truly sorry. The stock phrases did not apply to old James, so she wrote no epitaph for the heart which was stout as hickory, for the heart which was good as gold. She was glad in after years that old James passed on when he did, during Roosevelt's second administration, before the world went completely to the dogs and the Democrats, as he had said it would, he could never have endured the monotony of an unbroken Roosevelt administration, a regime which remembered nobody's apple blossoms. Now, in the most unlikely places, Miss Greenwood remembers old James and his memories. He persists forever. Old James, big as life. His whimsicality was his only cruelty to her and others. His left hand knew not what his right hand did. His left hand knew of the wild geese flying. It knew not of bombers over China. 
In what ways was he responsible for the world's disaster? Miss Greenwood is not sure, having been herself a collaborator, and the confusion of the world seeming innate like that in the heart and head of old James. This was published in the Kenyon Review in 1944. So I like that. Oh, it's a pretty good... Marco. Cat, what'd you do with it? What did you do with it? I'll bet it dropped when he jumped on me. Great. Okay. Um... This is old James. I can't. That had nothing to do with James and uh, the chauffeur. And this Macintosh, my darling, but it, it was interesting to see the play between uh, a rich old man and the poor secretary who takes notes. Um, some of the politics that would be uh, mentioned later on. Like I said, Miss M- Margaret Young was a product of her times of the Great Depression, of uh, Roosevelt's administration, of um, the New Deal, of World War II. All of that was was big. Even while, while she was writing Miss McTrust, My Darling, the Civil Rights Movement in 1965, all of that was there. She lived through. She lived through some very. Uh, tumultuous times uh, in the U.S. And I think that was all reflected in her writing as well. Um, And you can see this um, this melding of reality and and dream and these blank spaces between what what is remembered. Uh, that was interesting. That was a long story, but it was interesting. And it's, it's interesting that, that those are her stories. I mean, those are the only stories that I know of. Yeah, it's those three that were published and the one that was unpublished. Uh, she has quite, what, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 15 essays. 1, 3, 4... 22 reviews. And the reviews are interesting because I know I've seen um, of the parts of her uh, letters that are available uh, scanned in at the Brecky, at the Yale Library. <clears throat> I know she exchanged reviews. Like that was one of the ways that she got um, publicity for her writing and her poetry was by exchanging reviews, um, offering to review uh, others, saying that she reviewed, um, you know, recommended the book as a good Christmas gift, you know, so it would be commercially good, commercial, a commercial success. So I know the reviews were really important to her as a way of, um, as a type of currency between her and other writers to try and get a publicity for their writing. Um, so I'm very surprised that there's, I thought there would be more stories, but there was just the three uh, short stories. And I'm surprised that she didn't write more short stories. Of course, she wrote poetry. But just, you know, just those three short stories before she delved into to Miss McIntosh, My Darling. But you can see the ideas 
uh, little hints of what she was thinking about are, are there. So that's interesting. Oh, there's my bookmark. Okay, now, I, now I'm done. I found my bookmark. Um, okay, so next time we will go into... Um, I have another... Since we got sick over the last vacation uh, weekend we were supposed to have, we've decided to try take two and have uh, a weekend, a long weekend vacation without getting sick would be nice. Um, so next week I would definitely not... Uh, be around as much or it'll be later. Let's see these essays. The essays look pretty short. Yeah, I think old James there's a couple of essays that are yeah, but they're for the most part pretty short. I think that short story with old James was one of the longest that's in this collection. Let me see the reviews. Yeah. I think that's one of the longest ones that we'll, that we'll have. Um, otherwise, everything else will be pretty short. So we can have, like, we're running long today, so I don't think we'll have that uh, going forward. Anywho... Um, in March, I should be able to make Volume 1 and Volume 2 of To All My Darlings free again. Um, let's see. I'm pretty sure that'll happen in Volume 1. Uh, the, for Volume 1 and 2, I'm pretty sure that'll happen 1st of March. Alright, I think that's it. God, I hope I feel better. I mean, I do feel okay, but it's just this malingering cold feeling you know having a cold in the back of your throat feeling is just a pain oh my gosh all right anyways so sorry for that thanks for listening bye